right, looks like we've all made our way pretty much to our seats. If you have a Bible with you, you can open to Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 9. And so we're continuing our series in uh, Meals with Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. Maybe I'm not too loud there. And so the reason we're doing this is because this year we are kind of wanting to emphasize this theme of radically ordinary hospitality. So just to lay that out there again, uh, radical. That's one of those words I kind of get tired of hearing, right, especially in church. All we mean by saying that is, is that it is, it is sort of, you know, different. And so hospitality shouldn't be that. But sadly, in our culture of privatism, comfort worship, is, is, it really is radical to open our hearts and our lives and our homes to other people. And we say if, if you're a student, that might mean to, to open your dorm room. And so also when we talk about ordinary is that we're not talking about like something fancy. We're not talking about like epic encounters. No, it's radically ordinary. Ordinary means it's, it's just having coffee with somebody. Ordinary means it's just even if somebody comes to your house, you don't have to prepare a great meal. You can break out the peanut butter crackers. And then hospitality is, is to redefine that term biblically, is that it, it's not having a tea party for your socially connected friends, it's, it's opening your life to the stranger. In the Bible, hospitality was saying, we're going to care for people that we come in contact with, even if they're unknown, even if they're an outsider, or even in the Bible, radically so, even if they're an enemy. We're going we're gonna to take it as our responsibility to love others with our hearts and with our lives. And so we're seeing how Jesus did this because we never want to impose our own ideas or agendas on, on ourselves or on others. We just want to follow Jesus. And so we're going to see another meal with Jesus today in Luke chapter 9, verses 10 through 17. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. Remember that. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, uh, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we're to go buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Let's pray. Father, just as you fed these thousands of people, we ask that you would feed us here today. We confess that we are inadequate and unable to even feed ourselves apart from your grace. We pray today that you would open us. Many of us stuffed full of the 
candy of the world that offers us quick fix feelings but gives us no true nourishment. But we pray now that you would give us a, a hunger for your word, a hunger for your son and for his kingdom. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, we like to quote great theologians here at Matthew's Table Church. And so I want to begin with a quote from one by the name of Mike Tyson. So Mike Tyson says this, Everyone has a plan until you get punched in the mouth. Now this was a phrase, honestly, in our church planning residency that was used very often. Everyone has a plan until you get punched in the mouth. Now this is helpful, and why this is helpful, especially when it comes to following Jesus, is that many of us have big plans, many of us have very practical agendas for how we're going to change ourselves, change the people around us, and some of us that get real audacious how we're going to change the world. But plans don't power perseverance because plans usually just get trashed. Living as fallen people in a fallen world, things just don't go how we want. And sometimes they do. And even when our plans do work, we find ourselves then just having to do better and try harder to keep that plan going. And so there's some of us in here who are exhausted from always feeling like our plans fall apart. And there's others of us in here who are exhausted because we're doing everything always to keep our plans from falling apart. There's some of us in here, no doubt, will go home tonight and you will look at your calendar for this week and you are just going to think, there is no way I'm going to make it. There's no way that I'll be able to do what I'm asked to do for my family. There's no way I'm going to be able to pull off everything that this syllabus requires. There's no way I'm going to be able to show up into the lives of the people I love in this church. There's the calendar and then there's the comparisons. You're scrolling on Facebook or Instagram and you're seeing, wow, all these other people seem to be able to do it. And there's the phone calls you're going to get this week that are going to be surprising and shocking. The expectations, whether real or perceived from other people on you. There's that siren call of the idols of control and comfort. And then there's that nagging voice in the middle of all that in your head saying, am I enough? Am I enough to continue to stand in this ring, to stand in this life? Not only am I enough, but for many of us, do I have enough? Do I have enough? we're all going to hit our limits. We're all going to hit the wall. And it's very tempting to quit serving. It's very tempting to quit following Jesus when we do this. When we run into the material needs and spiritual needs of ourselves, of other people in our lives, or, or even if we're going to welcome those who are outside the faith into our hearts and into our homes, we're going to hit these limits and it's going to be very evident that we cannot pull this off 
And if you're not feeling that tension, that just means you're not living in the way of Jesus because living in the way of Jesus, following Him as the servants that He's called us to be, will lead us there. As we think through these issues of hospitality, of opening ourselves, we're doing this in line with these identities we believe that Jesus has given us fundamentally. We talked about what it means to exercise hospitality as disciples. We talked about what it means to do this radically ordinary hospitality as family. And we're talking today, connecting you to what it means to be servants. And we say that we're servants because we follow the one who was the servant king. As we've already read, who said, I came not to be served, but to serve. And then he tells us, as I live, so you are to live. That the Gentiles, those outside of the kingdom, want to lord it over other people. They want to be in charge. They want to set an agenda where they maintain their control and their comfort. But as my followers, you're called to serve people. You're called to be low. You're called to be last. You're not called to pull up the seat at the best part of the table. You're called to leave that seat open for the least. You're called to display tangibly what it means to love others and to serve others as I have. And doing life in this way of the kingdom will always lead you beyond your capacity. Following Jesus, daring to do what Paul says in Colossians, to fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Not that Jesus didn't get anything done, but we're called to display now the life that he lived in his sacrificial suffering and service of others. That will always lead you beyond your limits. And that can either result in you having exhausted despair which maybe some of you are this morning. You're already hearing this through the, through the filter of law, through the lens of guilt and shame and fear. And so if, if that's how you, you hear this word of Christ, then that will lead you into exhausted despair. But if you hear it through the lens of the gospel, of the good news of the kingdom, then it can lead you just to a deeper, more joyful and trusting dependence. But the legalistic, unhappy, self-pitying, dead works duty that so many of us engage in reveals that we are not seeking to live a life of following Jesus that takes us deeper into our experience of Him being only who He can be. But maybe it's really just been all about us. Because those who follow Jesus in view of the gospel of the kingdom find at the end of their supply the enjoyment of his sufficiency. I want to say that again. Those who follow Jesus out of the overflow of the gospel of his kingdom experience the enjoyment of his sufficiency at the end of their supplies. And so the call for us is to serve so that our limits and our lack encounter his lordship. This is what I believe we're seeing in part from our, our text today. The first thing is, is that following Jesus in hospitality as servants leads us to beautiful things but beyond our capacities. 
Notice this beautiful draw in verses 10 and 11. So the apostles are returning. This is the first time that they've been sent out on their own to go and do what Jesus did. So we say we define a disciple as someone who lives with Jesus, who is with Jesus, or they learn to be with Jesus, they learn to become like Jesus, and they learn to do what Jesus did. So the disciples have been with Jesus, they're becoming like Jesus, he sent them out to go and do what he's done, and they come back and they're reporting these wonderful things. It's just beautiful. It's what we want to do. It's our heartbeat as a church. We want to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did together. They've got to experience that. And they're getting to experience it some more because notice verse 11. These crowds learn about it. They learn that, that the disciples and Jesus are rejoicing, celebrating what has been done. They've tried to go to this desolate place to do this, but as so often what happens, people get wind of it and they follow. And this time it's thousands of people. So it says 5,000. Many commentators here think that was just describing the men. And if you included women and children, there could have been up to fifteen to 20,000 people. So this is... This is a huge gathering out in this wilderness place. And when they come to Jesus, notice, he welcomes them. And again, all we're talking about when we're talking about gospel hospitality is just welcoming people. And Jesus, in his kindness and compassion, when he's trying to get away, be alone with his disciples, he welcomes these people. And what does he do? He speaks to them the gospel of the kingdom. He proclaims to them the kingdom of God that is the saving reign that has come into this earth through Jesus Christ that makes all things new. And He cures those who had need of healing. It's a, it's a kingdom engagement of both declaration and demonstration. And it's beautiful. It's why we're doing what we're doing. It's what we've all signed up for. But the beautiful call that Jesus gives us of the kingdom always leads us beyond what we expected. So notice verse 12. The day began to wear away, and the twelve came to him and said, you need to send this crowd away so that they have somewhere to stay and somewhere to eat. Because we're in this desolate place. Desolate is not a throwaway word. Desolate place means a place apart from the everyday provisions of life. A desolate place is a place where you are not able to care for yourself. There's just not the stuff around to do it. This is why the disciples want to send the crowd away. A desolate place is a place where no one can provide for you but God. And we need to just underline this fact right now. Jesus doesn't lead people to places where they can depend on him less. Jesus does not lead us to places where we can depend on him less. So many of us have this notion of following Jesus that we will get sucked into this beautiful vision of the kingdom. And oh, may it be so. May he take us deeper. But we think once we get there, it's just going to be, wow, now I've arrived. Now I have it all together. Now I just always feel so confident. Now I just always feel so much at peace. 
Now I'm just in a place where I'm going to help other people. That's not where Jesus takes us. I want you to imagine that you take, you, you know, this beautiful mountain view. There's some beautiful ones here around where we live. And you take someone there because you want them to see that view. And they're so excited about it. You show them pictures. You've, you've, you've given them these ideas of what it, what it looks like to just look out and see the beautiful horizon of God's creation. And you get there, and they're standing there, and they're like, this is amazing. This is the best thing that I've ever seen in my life. Look at how huge that mountain is. Look at how deep that valley is. Look at how majestic that river is. You can only imagine how deep that lake is. And then you look at them and you say, all right, now we're going to climb it. And they start to get nervous. And then you look at them and you say, you see that lake? Okay, now we're going to swim it. You see that river? Okay, now we're going to raft it. You see that cliff? Now we're going to rappel down it. And they look at you and they say, I don't think so. I was only here for the view. <laughs> that may be how some of us are. We, we really want verses 10 and 11. We want the view of the kingdom but do we want the experience of the king do we want to see the beauties of the Mount Everest the kingdom of Christ but not climb it knowing every step of the way will mean that we keep ourselves tethered to him as the only way up this is the logic of the kingdom. If we think back through the story of the Bible, what happens is as God calls Moses to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt, immediately what happens is, yay, we are delivered. And he leads them to this sea that they can't cross. And what do they begin to do? They begin to murmur, don't they? What did you do, God? What did you do, Moses? Just lead us out here to die? And then he, he's... He provides for them in a way that only He can, and they're taken through the Red Sea, and then they find themselves in the wilderness, and then they find themselves up against these great enemies of these great cities. And again, their reflex is not to remember His faithful provision, but to look to their inadequacy and their lack, and to say again, why did you lead us here? To die? As we follow Jesus, we hit these walls. We're thinking of these issues of hospitality. And again, we're not, just, we're not talking about having a party in our house so much as we're talking about opening our hearts and homes to people. That begins with the relationships you have, whether that be in your dorm room, in your home, with your roommates, with your spouse, with your children. But what is going to happen is you're going to have, you can have this beautiful vision of what that's going to look like to get close to somebody relationally. Well, guess what? If you don't already know it, that's not probably going to go very well. You're going to have to have a commitment to more than the view. You're going to have to have a commitment to the work of the kingdom. 
You're going to have to be ready that once you let yourself be known and you really get to know other people, that you're going to say, uh-oh, I don't know what to do now. I don't have enough. I thought this was supposed to be beautiful and now it's so beyond. You open yourself, your home to other people as we're talking about the outsider. And again, it sounds so beautiful. But very quickly you will see that you are taken beyond your emotional, physical, and material resources. And that is exactly where Jesus wants you to be. The will of God is not to lead you deeper into worshiping your idols of control and comfort. So many times we say, this must not be the will of God because it's so hard. When the path of the kingdom leads through the cross into a greater hope, you see, so often we plan to minimize our dependence. This is what the disciples are doing here. Even after they've experienced all that, their gut reaction is, how can we organize our lives so that we can be less dependent on Jesus? They still have a view of Jesus that isn't mundane enough. And what I mean by that is, they have a view of Jesus that says, you know, he does great things like preaches and heals people, but supper, lodging, I think we probably need to take care of that. You see, our, our view of Jesus, again, back to that word radical, is, is it's, it's not ordinary enough. It's very radical, it's very different to have a view of Jesus that says, I'm going to submit to him as lordship over just this everyday stuff. The everyday physical needs of my life, the everyday emotional needs of my life, the everyday realities. Their view of Jesus isn't mundane enough, and their view of Jesus still isn't discomforting enough. And they get nervous, and we get nervous, and when we get nervous, we look to plans instead of the person. And the old joke is, right, if all else fails, pray. And it's a joke and a cliche because it's true. Once I've already tried everything I need to, now I'll look to Jesus. But Jesus has ways of disrupting our plans. It's the beauty of the person that got all of us to where we are with Jesus today. But why do we then try to live our lives apart from this person? But we don't know it until we get to these situations. And Josiah's in here, and all you kids are, and it's, it's easy. Josiah's my youngest son, if y'all don't know. He likes math, which is cool. But yesterday, we're, we're watching some little math video on YouTube, and he's like, oh, yeah, that's easy. That's easy. And so I printed an off worksheet and give it to him, and he does really, really good, but he misses some of them. Because we don't know what we don't know until we come to the end of ourselves. There's probably many of us in here who would have a lofty theology 
of God's sovereignty. But lay in our beds at night anxious over how the next day will turn out. There's probably of us in here who have a lofty theology of God's grace, and yet we get irritated and frustrated with people like this and with ourselves like that. And what Jesus loves to do, not to wound us, to hurt us, is to just show us that we have not arrived. And so we see here not only that Jesus leads us to this place, but he leads us to a place to where we learn to obey by faith and not sight. We see this in verses 13 through 15. Verse 13, Jesus calls them then to do what only, they can do, only he can do. So he says to them, you give them something to eat. Again, Jesus in some ways, I don't, I don't think smart aleck is the right word because that's, that's not a good word. But Jesus likes to sort of mess with people in a holy way. So he knows the situation. It's not like Jesus is thinking, we've got all this food and it's okay. But they're like getting nervous. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? How are we going to provide for all these people? And he says, why don't you just give them something to eat? And you can just, it must have been really hard to roll your eyes at Jesus, right? That would have been, been really bad. But you've got to imagine that the disciples were kind of here doing their best to not do that. What do you mean give them something to eat? We, all we've got is five loaves and two fish. They're trying to, think about the, the, the boldness of this. They're trying to help Jesus understand reality. Jesus, you're being irrational. Jesus, you're not in touch with my reality. We barely have enough for ourselves. Unless you want us to go and buy food for all these people. Good one, Jesus. Where are we going to get the money from? But notice Jesus leads and disciples people by faith and for faith. So Jesus does organize them. So there's this, there's this call to great faith, but it's also met with some organization. It says, I want you to have them sit in groups of 50 because it'll be easier to distribute this food that who knows where it's going to come from. But go ahead and organize them. Go ahead and make a plan. But notice that the plan is not for their comfort's sake and the plan is not for their control's sake, but the plan is set in motion so that they are put in a position to be engaged in a faith-filled experience of the gospel. And to give them credit where credit is due is they obey. They did it. Verse 15, they did so. They had them all sit down. They submit their reality to Jesus' reality. They are learning to obey before they see, which in the Bible is the definition of faith. They are learning to obey before they even have full understanding. Now this isn't a blind, reckless, foolish faith because it's a faith in a Jesus who has proved himself. It's a faith who is the one that has come, who is the Lord of all creation, who has calmed the storm, who has healed the sick, who has opened the eyes of the blind. But it is faith. If 
We're trying to live our lives following Jesus, saying, Jesus, I'm not going to do that until you tell me how it's going to work out. Then we just remove faith. And faith is at the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. There's an old movie, and when I reference these, it dates me, and some of you may not know it. Pretty good movie, though, called Field of Dreams. It's a movie about baseball. It's a movie, uh, it would probably bore you for me to give you all the details, but the basic gist of this movie is that if this guy builds this baseball field out in his cornfield in the middle of nowhere, that these classic baseball players are going to just kind of walk out of the cornfield and play baseball there. So out in the middle of nowhere, if he builds it, they will come. This whole story is a wrestling with faith and relationships on many different levels. But in one case, it, it's also a picture, again, of what Jesus is often calling us to do as he's called people throughout the whole history of his kingdom to do. Noah, I want you to build an ark. And they hadn't even ever seen rain. There's a word that we would use for that. Foolish. Not wise. He says, Abraham... I'm going to make you a father of many nations. But you don't have a child. Your wife is infertile. And you're still waiting when you're around 90-something years old. Elijah, I want you to build this altar up on this mountain in the presence of all these false prophets and a king who could have you killed in an instant. And I want you to pray fire down from heaven. This is faith. This is the same story we've been called into in 21st century Cleveland, Tennessee. And Jesus isn't asking us to reinvent what it looks like to be his followers today. He's asking us to rediscover the life of a servant of the kingdom who lives with faith before sight and believes Jesus will come through. And we're not saying be foolish. We're not saying, you know what, I'm just not going to sleep anymore because Jesus will give me rest. We're not saying I'm going to answer every text message I get immediately even if I have other more important things I need to do. We're not saying I'm going to open up uh, my room to a well-known rapist. Sorry to say that word, but anyway. I'm just saying this because some of us get misconstrued when we talk about these matters of hospitality, opening our hearts and homes. We're not saying to legitimately be foolish. We're not calling one another to a cookie-cutter obedience where it looks the same for everyone. If they do this, then I must do this. God didn't call everybody to build an ark. God didn't call everybody to build an altar. God didn't call everyone to be a father of many nations. Not saying your re reality doesn't matter, the season of life you're in, or the personality that God is giving you, but what we are saying, what God is saying, what the kingdom is saying, what the king is saying, is we must serve by faith and not sight. 
Wisdom is not the removal of faith. I'll say it again. If you have a definition of wisdom that removes faith, that's worldly wisdom. It's not the wisdom of God. Some of us shut down the, the, the leadership of the Holy Spirit in our lives like that because we silence His movement in us with our own wisdom that really is just set up to serve our own control and comfort. I heard someone this week say this phrase that they took from someone else. We've, we've all got to learn to be our own radical. For some of you, having coffee with another believer might be a big step for you. And I just want to say, do it. Do it. It's going to be really uncomfortable if you're not used to talking to people. Others of you may need to, to open your home. But whatever it is, you need to ask, am I organizing my life for faith or am I organizing my life to keep me from it? There are 84 meals, if you count three meals a day, in a four-week month. What would it look like for you to say, I'm going to do one out of 84 to open my heart or home to someone who is yet to know Jesus? One out of 84. Now, you don't got to do it alone. I can partner with somebody to do it, but what would that look like? What faith would that take? It may mean like the disciples, you have to submit your reality to Jesus' reality. Some of us are always saying but to Jesus. You're saying, Jesus, you're calling me into things that don't account for my reality. But the disciples are saying, Jesus, you're asking me to do stuff do you not get what my life looks like? And Jesus is like, it's exactly what I'm doing. You finally get it. I'm going to call you into stuff that doesn't match with your capacity and your limits. He's glad that we're getting to that understanding. Because He wants to satisfy us beyond our own self-control and self-sufficiency. What Jesus wants to do is to use His mission not merely to get things done, but to get you done, to get me done. He doesn't want to just use you to do stuff. He doesn't want to just use you to welcome the outsider. He does, but in the meanwhile, He's going to grow you in ways that you never imagined. And you're going to realize, oh wow, this was maybe as much about my heart as it was anybody else's. And so how do we do this? We must have this vision how our text ends, that following Jesus into hospitality as servants doesn't only lead us beyond the beautiful into, the limits and, into our limits and our capacities, not only does it call us to obey before sight, to have, a, have a, a, a pursuit of a deeper satisfaction than we can pull off in our resources, but it leads us to actually having an experience, a tangible experience of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Notice what happens. Verse 16. Jesus takes the five loaves and the two fish and He looks up to heaven and He says a blessing over them. And He breaks the loaves 
and gives them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And this actually happens. And they eat and were satisfied, and there was leftovers, 12 basketfuls. Jesus provides. Now this, is, this may be a paradigm shift for some of you. Jesus does for them what they could not do for themselves. This is the logic of the gospel. God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. If we don't get this logic, then we will live in exhausted desperation. But if we understand this, then we can begin to lean into a life of entrusting dependence to where we organize our lives to put ourselves in situations where if God doesn't show up, then it doesn't happen. I think at the heart of much of our faith is we just have a really small view of God. And we feel like it's our job to defend His reputation. You know, I don't want to really try that because if it doesn't work out, I'm afraid it might make God look bad. As someone once said, I don't, maybe it was Charles Spurgeon, you know, a, a line doesn't need any defending. God doesn't want you to defend Him. He wants you to depend on Him. God's not threatened by anybody. He wins. Game is over. He rules and He reigns. He's now asking you to let those eternal kingdom realities break into your life today. Just as we pray on earth as it is may have been Benjamin Franklin, but he's told us that God helps those who help themselves. But Jesus has told us, I help those who come to the end of themselves. Much of the lack of change in our lives and the openness in our lives to others is, is not because, it's, it's, it's not because that we've really not tried hard enough, it's, it's because we've, we've tried too hard. We've tried in our own power. We've tried for our own glory. But the logic of the gospel is Jesus saying to us, do you not realize how this whole relationship with me got started? You were dead in your sins. If we want to talk, I'm going to live my life according to my reality, guess, here was your reality. You were graveyard dead. Reality said that you would be forever dead under the wrath of God. That's reality. And you couldn't lift a finger to do anything. And me, in my grace, came and did for you what you could not do for yourself. Jesus is saying, I lived the life that you could never live. The life you thought you could live, guess what? The, the only way to, to have that life is to come to the end of yourself and to say to Jesus, I can't even live. He's saying, I died the death that you deserve to die. I went to the cross. Reality says, if it's just, just your reality we're dealing with, reality says is that you're done. It's that guilt and shame and fear that you feel, it wins. 
Jesus says, my redemption says, all of that is silenced because death has been put to death. Sin, hell, and Satan have been silenced because the penalty has been paid. And the resurrection says to our self-defined realities that the dead do live. That there is life that comes forth from nothing. The gospel of the kingdom tells us that if Jesus did all those things for us, how will he now not give us everything that we need? And notice they were satisfied. You see, many of us believe that Jesus can save us, but we don't believe he can satisfy us. You've got to ask yourself that. Do you believe that Jesus can save you and satisfy you? Because if you don't, then maybe all you've done is given Jesus your afterlife and not this life. And no wonder we live our lives as such miserable Christians at times because we have a relationship with Jesus that has been assigned to some far-off distant future. when Jesus comes to satisfy our souls and to do so is in such a way that there are leftovers for other people. When we talk about hospitality, this is all that we really mean. It's Jesus is enough to satisfy us and to have that overflow so that others can experience it. Experience it through relationships and dorm rooms and coffee shops and restaurants and around the tables in our own houses. And as we do so, like Mike Tyson said, you're going to feel like you're getting punched in the mouth. Your lack and your limits are going to all come to the surface. And at that point, you have the opportunity in your heart to say, Jesus, I just want to go back to the towns. I just want to go back to the places where I know there's something to eat and somewhere to sleep. And Jesus is going to say to you, you give them something to eat. And you're going to think, I don't even have enough to feed myself. He's going to say, you're right. I'm glad that we finally got there. Because until Jesus is enough, no one will be enough. Until Jesus is enough, our service will feel like duty. But when Jesus is enough, we can say words like Hudson Taylor's son records him as saying, after many years of sacrificial service on the mission field, I never made a sacrifice. What he said was true because he was finding a deeper satisfaction in God. A satisfaction that tells us Jesus is able to provide beyond all our strength and supplies. Father, we thank you for this good news that is ours in Christ. And we pray now as we come to your table that we would taste and see again your provision. We pray now, Father, that you would help us to confess where we have organized our lives of serving others and opening ourselves to others only to the point of our own power. And we pray that we would see you again as enough. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.